0: This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. Good morning, Park Church. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 10, verses 5 through 42. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew back. And if you don't have one at home, um, we'd love you to take that as a gift from Park Church. Matthew 10, beginning in verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse leopards, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the rooftops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it.
1: Thank you, Audra. Can we give her a round of applause for the long scripture reading? We uh, sometimes when we have longer texts, we're like, "Yeah, let's just make it shorter," but not today, not today. You got the whole passage. Um, we uh, we are so grateful that you're here with us. I'm looking forward to getting into this passage with you all. Uh, my name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, before we do, I just feel like this is going to get bad. Um, I'm going to get rid of my water before I. Before I spill it all over everything um, before we, uh, before we do I want to one give you a bit of a warning and a disclaimer uh, we, uh, my wife and i uh, we have a newborn baby in our house. My wife gave birth to our new baby, yeah, it was exciting on uh, august twenty third so almost almost two weeks ago, uh, which among other things is really exciting, but also means I have a moderate degree of sleep deprivation right now, some like mentally mushy, and so there's that. Uh, in addition to that, I wasn't originally supposed to preach today. Uh, one of our other pastors who was supposed to preach today uh, got ill towards the middle of the week, and so kind of a, a last-minute sermon prep week on low sleep, and so all of that is to say, here we go. You know, uh, <laughs> let's, let's see how this goes. Uh, not a lot of sleep, not as much preparation. Uh, could be a recipe for something interesting, uh, but I'm excited about this passage. I'm looking forward to uh, unpacking it with you all, just making some observations as, as we work through it. Before I do, uh, we are jumping back into the Gospel of Matthew this Sunday. Uh, we take time as a church, kind of the majority of our Sundays, uh, to work through different books of the Bible. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew. This is now our fourth semester, uh, kind of in the Gospel of Matthew. And so we provide these books Uh, for you to work through the Bible in your own time. It kind of puts the the Scripture in here. You can take notes and mark up the Scripture, mark observations or things that stick out to you or things that the Holy Spirit's kind of speaking to you as you read through it. It gives ways to pray through the Scriptures. Uh, Also, areas to take notes on sermons, some uh, questions for consideration and discussion. So uh, we think it can be helpful to get you in the Word throughout the week and help guide you in that way. Uh, if you want one of these, many of you have already purchased them, so you can just pick them up in the back if you already purchased them. If you haven't yet, we suggest an $8 donation for them just to cover the cost of printing. If you can't afford that, then we encourage people to steal them. Uh, steal them when nobody's looking. Make a distraction. Somebody will look and just like grab it and run out the door. And because you have permission, it doesn't break the commandment. And so um, you're okay. Uh, speaking of, this could get interesting. Here we go. Um, no, but I really do encourage you to spend time in God's word. I, I do want to pause for a moment and pray. Uh, Neil Long, we were praying this morning, and and he was, the scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 came up, and he was just praying about how we have a, this treasure in jars of clay. And the treasure is the good news about Jesus and his kingdom. And we as just mere mortal humans who are um, navigating through life with our own brokenness, our own, for me today, just weariness and kind of mental kind of... Uh, ambiguities. We are just jars of clay and we carry this beautiful news. And the reason why God likes to share His news through uh, kind of these broken vessels uh, is because it shows His power and His power in the gospel and through the gospel. So we're going to pray that His power would be uh, kind of manifested among us as we spend time in His Word together, that the Spirit would work and do in us and through us more than we could imagine. And so would you join me as we ask God to work among us? Jesus, we um, pause now, and I just feel a lot of gratitude um, for the reality that you're with us, that we're not alone right now. If we were, then this would be a really kind of terrifying moment, um, but we're not. You are with us. Your Spirit loves to work uh, among us as your people gather together to worship you and to sing and to pray together, just hearing people pray through your prayer the way you taught us. Uh, It's just so encouraging to me to sit here and open up your word and see the instructions you gave to your followers as you sent them out on mission as a gift. And so would you work among us through the power of your spirit this morning? Would you awaken in us courage as your followers, that we'd be full of compassion as your people, compassion for the world like you taught us, but also full of courage and boldness to be ambassadors for you, those who proclaim the, the news of the kingdom but also demonstrate the power of the kingdom and all the different areas you've called us throughout the city. And so would you awaken in us where we've felt maybe complacent or indifferent towards your mission or where we've been maybe unaware of or ignorant of the function you've given us, the role you've given us in your mission in this world. Would you teach us, instruct us, fill us with passion and send us out into this world as those who carry the light of the gospel with us? as those who get to do good kingdom work in the different vocations and callings you've given us around the city. And so do more in this time than we could ever even ask or imagine according to the power that's at work within us. Through Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, This summer, I was watching and following the kind of uh, this new movement of commercial space travel. So you have Jeff Bezos with Blue Origin, started Blue Origin as this little side project that billionaires do, like, hey, I'm going to figure out how to get people to space. That like, sounds like a cool little hobby. And, uh, and then Richard Branson with Virgin Galactic. And you have these two kind of billionaires that are working to create opportunities for normal people like you and I with billions of dollars, um, you know, just like you and I, uh, to experience all of our childhood dreams, to actually experience space travel, or at least get right up to the Carmen line, experience weightlessness for like five to 10 minutes, and then come back down to the ground. And so you have these kind of two billionaires. It was funny for me to watch Jeff Bezos afterwards, like thanking all of his employees for making this possible, but also he thanked us. Every time you bought an Amazon package, you were participating in getting Jeff Bezos to space. And so for me, I'm like holding my Amazon package, feeling like I'm with him. You know, like I got you there, I did this. It's almost like I'm experiencing weightlessness right now. And it's just like, it's a fascinating goal, right? It's like, how do we get the uber wealthy to experience space travel? So I juxtapose that mission, which feels like a, you know, something billionaires can do for fun, with the, with the mission of SpaceX, which is way more fascinating and compelling to me. SpaceX with Elon Musk, their goal is just bigger, right? Their goal isn't, how do we help the uber wealthy make it to space? Uh, their goal is, let's colonize Mars, you know, which just is bigger. Right? Quite a bit, quite a bit bigger. Uh, but what I love about Elon Musk is he's like one of those people that has these wild dreams and then organizes all of his life around that dream. He has a passion to see something that in his mind is going to help humanity because of maybe the kind of obsolescence of planet Earth, of the idea that we will in time need another place of habitation. Mars is the best option. Let's figure that out. And he organizes great thinkers and resources and energy to get there to accomplish this mission, and they've made like, substantial strides. And I want to read this to you because I think it's going to help make sense of where we're going this morning in this passage. And this is uh, from one person reflecting on the way SpaceX trains its employees to think about the day-to-day work that they do in connection to the big-picture mission that they have. So here's what it says. One of the best examples of mission-to-metrics alignment comes from a friend who visited the manufacturing floor at SpaceX. Seeing a SpaceX employee assembling a large part, he stopped and asked him, what's your job at SpaceX? He answered, the mission of SpaceX is to colonize Mars. In order to colonize Mars, we need to build reusable rockets because it will otherwise be unaffordable for humans to travel to Mars and back. My job is to help design the steering system that enables our rockets to land back on Earth. You'll know if I've succeeded if our rockets land on our platform in the Atlantic after launch. The employee could have simply said that he was building a steering system for landing rockets. Instead, he recited the company's entire mission to metrics framework. That is alignment. And what I love about that, what's so compelling to me, is I'm a person who's just driven by the why. I Like, why? why what are we doing? Why does it matter? Where's this whole thing headed? And I can kind of get energy to do a lot of like menial or difficult or challenging things if I feel compelled by the why. And SpaceX as an organization has aligned all of the details of what they do. So every day when this engineer is working on building a steering system or troubleshooting some issue that they had or trying to build redundancies or whatever they're trying to do to make sure this thing works, they're doing it in connection to this massive vision, this grand mission to colonize Mars. And the reason why I want to start there is because what we're going to look at today is Jesus giving instructions for his people on mission. So he's about to send his apostles and then subsequent generations of followers out on mission into the world to participate in what he's doing to bring restoration to the world. The mission of Jesus, the vision of Jesus is wildly ambitious. Nothing short of bringing complete restoration to everything that's been broken by sin in the world to bring healing to societies and cities and families and human hearts, reconciling people to God, binding up the broken, eliminating poverty, bringing justice and peace and love and righteousness and grace into the world, restoring all of creation. This is the mission of Jesus. It is massive, it is global, it is this universal mission that he has. And then he kind of comes to this moment in Matthew 10 where he's going to give his 12 apostles very specific instructions on some stuff to do over the next few days. What he's calling them to do, how he's calling them to participate. And so at the heart of this passage is this, I think, really astounding truth that Jesus accomplishes his mission in the world by sending his people into the world. Jesus accomplishes his wild, ambitious, creative, powerful mission and vision in the world by sending his people, you and I, out into the world with some really specific instructions. And so what I, what I want to do this morning is I want to connect the kind of day-to-day work that we're called to do as you go to your workplace, as you interact with your family or your roommates, as you engage with your neighbors in your neighborhood or think about issues in the city and ways that you can serve. I want to connect the, the normal things of life that you and I are called to participate in, that we really already do participate in, And give you a framework to understand those in the context of what Jesus is doing to bring restoration to the world. And I think that's a little bit of what this passage is guiding us into. There's some really specific instructions for the 12 that have really important principles for all followers of Jesus. And so this morning what we'll do is kind of give a big picture of the mission of God, what God's doing in the world through Jesus. And then we'll get into this passage and really just unpack a couple of observations. There are so many details in this passage, exegetical details that I think are really fascinating. There's verses that you're going to be like, what does that mean? And we won't cover all of those. There's just too much today. And so I encourage you to spend some time in the Word throughout the week. But I want to draw attention to a few observations that I think will be relevant for us as a people in this time. And so I want to start by having you open up to actually Matthew chapter 9. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, we get a little bit of the context of Matthew 10. If we start in chapter 9, verse... 35. Uh, Matthew has been presenting Jesus as the long-awaited king who's come to restore Israel and through the restoration of Israel to restore the world to God. And so what Matthew's presenting Jesus as is this king that every human being is longing for, one who's going to bring restoration to everything that's been broken in the world. And so he's been proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He's been teaching people the way of the kingdom. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Now he's been demonstrating the power of the kingdom through healing and forgiving and binding and reconciling people together and reconciling people to God. And then he gets to this place in chapter 9, verse 35. It says this, kind of a summary statement. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues. He's teaching what God's doing in the world and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Then it says this in verse 36, and when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Um, Jesus has been healing many, many people. He's been teaching many, many people. And yet he looks at humanity. He looks at these crowds of people in these cities, and he sees how much brokenness there is. How people have been led astray, and how people are buying into narratives about the world that are hurting them, how people have been betrayed and abandoned, how they're hurting. And when he sees the brokenness in the world, what he feels is not contempt, not frustration. What he feels is compassion. We looked at this in the spring. The Greek word is splagnizomai, which means a sort of like gut-level pain, like he's moved in his gut as he looks at the brokenness in the world. So he sees the brokenness, he feels compassion, and then he prays. The, the need in the world is so significant that instead of Jesus starting to say, I need to heal more and more people, like make my schedule more busy, kind of like pack my time, I'm going to get up earlier, go to bed later, kind of pack it in, there's just too much to do, we got to keep going. Instead, he says, The need in the world, his vision for the world, is going to require him sending out more people to join him in the labor, and so he he prays to the Lord of the Harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. He's praying, he's praying for God to gather people that are going to join him in his mission, and then an immediate answer to that prayer, chapter ten begins with the calling of the twelve apostles. It's the first time they're called apostles in Matthew. And the word apostles doesn't mean Jesus' closest friends. It doesn't mean disciples. The word apostles means sent ones. These are the 12 sent ones. They're very title, When we think of the 12 apostles, what we're saying when we say apostles is the 12 sent ones, the ones that Jesus was sending out into the world to join him in his mission. And what will become clear throughout the rest of Jesus' ministry and the New Testament is that that mission, that sending out is something that extends beyond the 12 to all followers of Jesus. So I want to start with this observation and it's it's simply this, that every follower of Jesus is called to share in his mission. Every follower of Jesus is called to share in his mission. When Jesus invites people to follow me, there's a lot that he's inviting them into. He's inviting you first into relationship with him. He's inviting you to become an apprentice with him, where you get to spend time with him, experience his love, his kindness, but also where he instructs you on how to live and what it means to be human, right? And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Here's what it means to forgive, and here's what it means to turn from hatred, and here's what it means to be generous, and to be servant-hearted, and to be kind, and to love God, and to love your neighbor, even to love your enemy. He's teaching people the way of his kingdom, but he's also calling you to be a part of this movement where he sends us out into the world to share in his mission. And I think that's a stunning thing. The reason why there are people sitting in this room or watching online, the reason why there are followers of Jesus all around the city, all around this nation, all around this world, is because men and women who have gone before us were faithful to this mission. They shared the good news of Jesus. They shared about the love of Jesus. They shared the love of Jesus not just in the things that they said about him, but in the way they cared for and loved and served other people. The things that Christ followers have done in this world for the past two millennia are beautiful. In fact, the whole Bible, there's a theologian named Christopher Wright, and Chris Wright talks about the Bible as a missional document, that the whole Bible is written to the people of God on mission. So when you're writing Genesis, when Moses is penning Genesis, he's not just like, I'm going to sit down and just like write this story so people can read it. He's writing it to a people that are getting ready to continue the mission of God into the promised land. They're going to leave the wilderness and go into Canaan, and he's preparing them. You need to know God. You need to know his promises. You need to know his wisdom so you can be faithful to him as you continue the mission. Right When the prophets write to the Israelites as the Israelites are struggling, saying, hey, you're veering off mission. You're no longer being faithful to God and faithful to do and be the salt and light he's called you to be in the world. It's always calling people back to mission. Every New Testament document, all the biographies of Jesus called the Gospels, or all the letters from the kind of epistles of Paul to the pastoral epistles, all these different things are helping the people of God stay faithful to God in the midst of the world and continue the mission. And so we read the Bible as people sent on mission, and we carry it on. And so a passage like this uh, has a lot of help for us, but I want to be kind of clear about something. One of the things we talk about in biblical interpretation is the difference between things that are prescriptive and descriptive. So when you're reading the Bible, there are things that are descriptive. In other words, they're describing something that happened, and they aren't always prescriptive. So there are things that's going to describe that David did that you don't need to do, right? Right? Like, you don't need to do all the things that David did. There are things that it's going to describe about the kind of early followers of Jesus that they did that aren't saying, you need to do the same thing. So the question we get to in a passage like this, which is very clearly describing Jesus's commissioning to the 12, is going to say, what's descriptive? And what's prescriptive? What are the instructions that sort of transcend that cultural moment and that time in the ministry of Jesus that apply to us? And one of the things that is most certainly prescriptive is that we are all called to participate. Matthew includes this whole chapter teaching from Jesus like a lengthy teaching, not just to say here's something that happened, but to say this is supposed to guide you and prepare you followers of Jesus as you participate in the mission and continue that mission in the world. And so what is that mission? What's the mission? Um, The mission involves, number one, look at this in chapter five, verse, we'll read five, six, seven. Says, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, The first part of that is descriptive for their time and place. That actually, in the ministry of Jesus, he focused almost exclusively his teaching ministry on the people of Israel. He was the Messiah for the people of Israel. The mission of God from the beginning always included going beyond the nation of Israel to encompass all of humanity, but his mission began with the people of Israel. All 12 apostles were Israelites, and the focus of his ministry for those three years was to preach the news that the Christ, the Messiah of Israel, has come to restore Israel and then you see after the resurrection, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. So go among all the nations, all the ethnicities and bring the gospel, not just to Jerusalem or Judea, but beyond to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Everybody, this, this news of my kingdom is for everybody. And so for us in this world, it's for everybody. But in the moment here, what he's saying is the sort of centerpiece of his mission involves proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom to proclaim the good news about God's kingdom. Um, it's, it's popular in kind of uh, modern Christianity and churches to emphasize, and I think this is, there's a good emphasis here, the importance of demonstrating the love of Christ by the way we live. Not just like going out there and berating people saying, you need to believe this or you're going to hell, but actually to be people that live with the heart of Jesus in the world live with compassion, love, kindness, humility, charity, graciousness, to be people that actually serve and help your neighbors and serve and care for the the needs of the poor and care about issues of injustice, that actually engage in restorative work in the world. We're going to get there. That's vital. It's necessary. But it's also necessary to share the good news of Jesus. It's been wrongly, I think, attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, Uh, But a common saying is, preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. And that's just like is a nonsensical statement. Uh, When you think about what the gospel is, which is good news that the king has arrived, the king of the universe, in the person of Jesus, he's welcomed us back to God's kingdom through his death and resurrection. You should love and serve your co-workers. You should care about your neighbors. You should pray for them. You should have kindness. You should learn from them. You should build healthy friendship, not agenda-driven, just love people. Do that. But loving people doesn't magically make people aware that there's a King, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came to show them the love of the Father, who laid down His life for them to forgive them of their sins, rose again on the third day in order to give them the power to experience a new life. Like the, the love of the Christian community doesn't substitute or kind of negate in any way the need to share the news of the gospel with people. And that can be hard, and that can be daunting, and we can grow as people learning how to do that, and you get have different gifts around that. But we need to be people that are willing to talk about the claims of Jesus, that are willing to share the good news of Jesus to the world around us. I I feel personally, uh, growing up in a church that I really appreciate and learned so much from, I learned a lot about sharing the gospel. We call it evangelism, which is just sharing the good news. That's what evangelism is, sharing the good news. I learned a lot about evangelism. And uh, I, I didn't know how to build friendships, or was never almost encouraged to build friendships uh, with non-Christian people, just for the sake of loving people and just being a loving person in the world. Uh, but I did learn about sharing the gospel. And and so for me, for a long time, I kind of like pendulum swung away from this, maybe you feel this, and just have some like Aversity to just, like, quickly, you know, jumping to some conversation about Jesus. Like, that just, it bothered me. I think part of, like, the way I did it and was trained to do it just didn't make a lot of sense. It felt ineffective. And so just for years, I feel like I kind of, like, opted over here. Like, I'm just going to be loving and kind and encouraging to try to break stereotypes and feel, even in preparing this sermon, just convicted about a lack of courage. Just a fear of what are they going to think about me? Who are they going to associate me with? Especially if they hear I'm a pastor. I felt this a lot uh, most of my life, right? You kind of build a friendship and just kind of like try to be chill. And we're going to hang out. We're going to be good neighbors. And then eventually the question of like, so what do you do for a living? You're like, "Ah, I teach things. And, you know, uh, what do you teach? Ah, you know, ancient history. (laughs) uh, About... (laughs) Religious stuff, you know. Uh, you're just like, I'm a pastor, you know. And in the past, it would always be like, mostly. I mean, like, it's just like hard, for, like, okay. If I had a friendship established beforehand, they're like, all right, that, did, that surprised me a little. And then I feel convicted. I'm like, man, I feel like I've been like embarrassed about that. Over the past year or so, I've found, like, even in my neighborhood, people that just come up to me like, hey, you're a pastor, right? You're a pastor, right? Because I think there are things happening in the world where people have hunger, they have questions, things have been shaken, like presuppositions about where life is found or where joy is found or the stability of society or the dreams they had. So much has been shaken that I think there's a spiritual hunger. And so I'm praying personally for me that God would forgive me for my lack of courage, but grow within me and grow within us. Courage just to talk with people honestly about our relationship with Jesus, who he is and what he's done in our life. Not to force things down people's throat or to say, you have to believe this or we're not going to be friends. Not as an agenda, but as you love and care for people, to talk to them about Jesus. It's a part of the mission. It's a part of the mission. But it's not the only part of the mission. Look at what Jesus says right here in the passage. Says, proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. And he gives some more instructions just about dependence on God's provision and on his grace. But the kind of bottom line there is he's not saying merely proclaim. It's also calling us to demonstrate the transformative power of the kingdom. Jesus has been going from town to town preaching and healing. And the word healing is a lot bigger than miracles. It's not less than miracles, but it's bringing restoration to things that have been broken by sin in the world. And so we believe that God does miraculous things still. We believe that God heals the sick. We believe that God can do incredible things to cast out demons, that demon kind of involvement in the world is real. We believe all the crazy stuff. We think God does incredible things in this world that blows our mind. And we want to be on our tiptoes, like what else, what miraculous things might God want to do? But we're also called to participate in the mission of God through just just normal acts of transformative love as we seek to love and care for people, as you share the heart of Jesus with a heart of compassion, as you see a need in your neighborhood, a person who's struggling in some way, and you say, God, here I am, send me. I can love and serve and encourage. You hear about a discouragement of somebody who's walking through depression or something really challenging. You say, God, here am I, send me. I want to be just a friend who just is with them, loves them, cares for them. You you see an injustice happening in the world. You say, God, here am I, send me. You see something happening in your workplace that's just like, unhealthy or unhelpful or could be better. And you say, God, here am I, send me. And you start thinking about the day-to-day stuff that you're involved in with your household, in your neighborhood, in our city, in your vocation, your work, whatever it is. And you say, God, here am I, send me. And so the question i want to ask you to consider for a moment, if you were to pause and say, where do I see brokenness in my sphere? And I think it's totally appropriate for us to pray for Afghanistan. Totally appropriate. We should be begging God to move totally appropriate to pray for Haiti, totally appropriate, appropriate for us to play, pray for all those who have been affected by Hurricane Ida. And, and as things get closer to home, you start feeling like, I can pray, and I might be able to help in some way. I might be able to serve in some way. I might be able to love in some way. I might be able to give in some way. I might be able to be generous in some way, not because I can fix it, but because God's called me to be participating in his restorative work in the world. And then you get even closer to home, into like your workplace, And you start thinking about the ways that our work as human beings contributes, in theory, to human flourishing. you start thinking, how do I connect the work I'm going to do tomorrow to this heart-level motivation of loving and seeking restoration in the world? And almost everybody, I love sitting down with people and hearing, what do you do for a living? Because it's fun just to think about how even like things that feel so like niche, so kind of like focused, still are connected to some other product or service or good that contributes to human flourishing. And if you can get your mind out of, I go to work to advance my career, to make money, to establish, you know, wealth, or to gain an influence, or to establish security for my family, or to build a retirement, or whatever it is that often tends to drive human beings, and you get into, I go to work to love and serve and participate in what God's doing in the world, to be a human as humans were designed to be, doing the vocation that God's called me with a servant heart of love for other people. And I'll say this, this is a hard thing to say. If you if you feel like I can look at my work in the kind of ultimate end of my job, whatever we produce or whatever we do, if you can't figure out how this contributes to the common good and human flourishing, you really should look for another job. You really should. And I understand that there's privilege in saying that. I know it's hard in times. You just got to pay bills, but to start praying and saying, God, I want my work, and it can be, in education, in the service industry, it can be in finances, it can be in health, it can be in government, it can be in so many different areas, but saying, I want my work to contribute to human flourishing. It can be in transportation and safety and communications, all that good stuff, but begin to get your heart and mind around, how does this contribute to human flourishing? And when we are people who go into our workplace with a joy and an eagerness to do this work, not because I'm trying to make a name for myself, but I'm trying to love and serve people, And then people see that love and they see that posture and I'm also sharing with them about where that love and that kind of passion comes from. It's like, man, the way Jesus has loved me and served me, he's called me to do this, not to really make a name for myself, but to try to love and serve people. And I I fumble and I I stumble and I, I make mistakes all the time, but he's so gracious. And then all of a sudden, the proclamation paired with the demonstration of that kind of love now begins to have a real power. And that's what the 12 are called to do and that's what all Christ followers are called to do to go out into the world proclaiming the news of the kingdom and demonstrating the power and the transformative love of the kingdom in the way we live. And this is what he's called us to do in the world. And I think one of the things that is, feels heavy for me right now in the past season we've walked through is the need for us to share not just in the news of the kingdom and in the power of the kingdom, but in the heart of the king. To actually share the heart of the king. I, it's fascinating to me. It's really stunning to me to see this whole movement, this whole teaching kind of erupting out of Jesus' compassion for the world. It's compassion that moved him. He saw it. He was moved with compassion. So something for us to pray is, where do I see brokenness? God, give me a heart and a compassion for that area of brokenness, that situation, that family, that issue, and help me move in with open hands and saying, God, here I am. Send me into this as one who's been sent by you to participate in your mission. The second observation I want us to see um, is really the kind of body of this passage. And there's so much, there's so much here, but I'm going to kind of boil it down to uh, really the the best way I can think to describe it is this. The gospel creates a dilemma and that dilemma causes division. The, The news about the kingdom of God in and through the person of Jesus creates a dilemma for all of us and for all of humanity. It kind of puts before us Really, two options. And Jesus is really clear about this in so many places. This is hard in our society. It's like a hard word from Jesus. For a society that's so passionate about uh, tolerance and so aware of different worldviews that kind of moves towards the sort of postmodern moral relativ- relativism where it's just your truth is your truth, you do you. The news of Jesus is a news that creates a dilemma for people. It puts before you really two options. Will you trust what Jesus is saying about his kingdom? That he has come to bring the kingdom of God. That he's come to restore everything that's been broken. And when we say everything that's been broken, we're saying specifically everything that's been broken by humanity's rebellion against their creator. And he's actually calling people to turn from our rebellion, to trust in his life and death and resurrection, the forgiveness and the grace that he gives so he can be restored to God, welcomed into his community, and can participate in what God's doing to bring restoration to the whole world. And that kind of like two ways to live paradigm Jesus puts out there for us creates a dilemma because it's very different than the sort of like, uh, let's make Jesus palatable, let's soften things that people feel like, oh, I mean, like we're just, just like good loving people. I think that's really important. It breaks my heart. We've talked about it for the past three weeks that Christianity and Christians in the church aren't known mostly as a community of love. Uh, That is devastating. It's devastating. But if you have in your mind these kind of like this dichotomy of either we are berating people and shoving theology down people's throats and telling people all these things with arrogance and kind of lack of humility and pride and lack of compassion or we're over here saying like, Hey, you do you, it's all good. You know, we're just like, if those are the only two options, then we've like missed the point. Jesus is the most compassionate human who's ever lived. He walks into situations with so much mercy and so much tenderness, but he does not shy away from the hardest truths. And the hardest truth is that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. Nobody experiences what humans are made to experience life with God, as a part of the family of God, living. In communion with Him and through His Spirit, loving and serving the world around us, nobody experiences that life except through the person and work of Jesus. And that creates a dilemma for people that is a threat to the things that we tend to build our life on. So, in the, in the sort of biblical theological framework, when you look at the sort of the grand narrative of Scripture, what it's saying is you have this life you are made for, life in communion with God, experiencing his love, reflecting his love through his spirit, and the way you self-sacrificially give yourself to others, and in the way you honor and care for and receive the giftedness and perspectives of other people around you. And as we participate in what he's doing in the world, you have that, and humanity said no to God, we reject his reign over us, and we, in that place, being kind of tempted away from God by forces of darkness, we begin to live life craving all the things we are supposed to have with God we crave security, we crave love we crave acceptance, we crave pleasure we crave comfort, we, we crave relationships we crave meaning and purpose in the world we crave all these things now we're just trying to build the kingdom of God without the king we're trying to establish a paradise without the God of the garden we're trying to kind of build something that will make sense of our life and feel meaningful and so we labor to, through political engagement which has its value but politics cannot bring the kingdom of God it can't because it can't forgive us and redeem what's been broken by our rebellion. It can't. And so we engage in these things, and we put this hope in politics, and it becomes so frustrating because we're trying to live for something that can never give us what we were created to experience. Or we put our hope in relationships, and relationships are hard, and there's divisions, and misunderstanding, and frustration, and then you feel resentment in your heart, and it's hard to humble yourself and ask for forgiveness, or to offer forgiveness, and so, and you feel that the brokenness in families, and Jesus is saying, this is what begins to happen. You start to see people dividing and there's brokenness. Or we put our hope in things like technology and progress. And, you know, there are all these promises, like when social media began to be a thing, it's like the world's going to be connected. And we're going to learn about other people's perspectives. And we're going to see other people's way of life. And we're going to grow. And this kind of humanitarian movement's going to erupt as we begin to see each other and value each other and care about each other. That's what technology is going to do. It's like, it's done the opposite. There's clear data in the sort of echo chambers that are created and the animosity and the polarization that happens among society. And so you have all this hope in these things and we build and at some point, if you, even if you feel like the brokenness of it, then we start moving to numb ourselves from that pain, distract ourselves. And Jesus comes into that dark space. He comes into that brokenness, not with contempt, not with frustration, but with compassion. And He says, there's a kingdom that's here for you, and I've come to welcome you into it. And as people turn to Jesus, they start experiencing healing and transformation and hope and grace, and they are called in to participate in this new mission. And that, that sort of dilemma of which way will you go, the reason why it then causes division is that that news is so challenging. It's such a threat to the little kingdoms that we spend our time building. And so if people don't believe in the news that Jesus has come to proclaim and that we are called to proclaim, uh, it is a real threat. It's a real threat. They feel it as a threat and a frustration, and this marked the ministry of Jesus, both from the religious elite but also from the Roman government. They saw Jesus as a threat. They saw his followers as a threat, which is why 11 of the 12 disciples were indeed martyred for their faithfulness to Jesus. The 12, who wasn't martyred, was exiled on an island until he was, died of old age, right? That's John. They all suffered. And you re, read Hebrews 11, just the amount of people who just suffered in their faithfulness to Jesus. And I think that, that dilemma that creates this sort of division as we share the news of Jesus, as we try to demonstrate the love of Jesus, it begins to bring divisions, right? Because if you're honest about that and you're bold and courageous about that, it means your, your mother-in-law, according to the passage, might hate you. It means your coworker, might think you're an idiot. It means people that are trying to kind of build this whole kind of movement or coalition to accomplish peace on earth in a way that's devoid of Jesus, that thinks religion's the problem, is going to see you as the problem, and you will be hated. Jesus said it. It's one of the things Jesus says in all four Gospels, you will be hated. They hated me. They called me the devil. In other words, they called me the obstacle to their mission. They're going to see you as the obstacle to their mission. And that's hard. That's a hard word. And so what I kind of think about when I think about this passage is Jesus saying, hey, you, you've got options. You can sort of like bow to the sort of like um, the expectations of people and the desire to please people, and you just soften the message, and you just like play it safe. And, and you'll maintain your friendships, and people will think you're cool, and they'll think you're nice, and you're a Christian who's like not like all those other ones, and, and all that stuff, and you're kind of there, and you'll kind of protect all these things. And He says, when you protect that stuff, you've missed the whole boat. Because it means, like, do you really believe that Jesus is the king of the world that the world desperately needs to turn to? Do you really believe that he is the hope of the world? Do you really believe that he is the way and the truth and the life? And so he says, everyone who seeks to save their life, to protect themselves from any sense of displeasure in the world, will end up losing it. But if you're willing to lose your life, if you're willing to say, hey, this might mean this person doesn't think I'm that cool anymore, this might mean I, I feel really misunderstood. Uh, this might mean my parents think I'm crazy, or the friend group that I've been trying to like get involved in and get connected to is gonna like think I'm a weirdo, uh, or the coworkers I work with are gonna think I'm a, I'm a part of the problem. They're gonna associate me with people I don't want to be associated with. If if you can finally say it might mean that, but the kingdom is real, the king is real, and he's working and he's moving, and I'm a part of a movement where my own relationship with Jesus was through the faithfulness of men and women who came before me that were faithful to share the good news and to show me love and to say, I'm willing to lose that to show courage. What you'll find is there will be hatred. There will be animosity. There will be division, but there will also be transformation. There will be stories of God working to restore people. I have seen so many people who I thought, I don't know how they'd ever follow Jesus. And seeing transformation break into the darkest spaces, seeing people learn about him and experience his love and forgiveness and the way that's healed families and relationships and marriages. As people turn to Jesus, it's given people hope, pulled people out of the most painful spaces. To see God work like that, that's the the mission. That's the vision that Jesus has given us, and it requires us to have courage. And so Jesus is really clear in this passage that even as his followers, we can decide to, again, to sort of like acquiesce and accommodate to the kind of sensibilities of the world and numb the message and water down the message of Jesus, or we can share the heart of Jesus and the love of Jesus as we continue to share the message of Jesus to the world, believing he can do more than we could ever ask or imagine. And so the question I want to ask is 2,000 years ago, Jesus gave this message, message, this commission to 12 people. Through their faithfulness, it multiplied to hundreds and then thousands from city to city, village to village, region to region, nation to nation, generation to generation, such that today, 2,000 years later, men and women and children all around this globe worship Jesus Christ as Lord. They, they worship Him as the Son of God who came into this world, laid down His life for us, forgave us of our sin, reconciled us to God, reconciled us to a Father who loves us and is changing us by His love to reflect His love in the world. Millions of people today are worshiping that Jesus and seeking to be faithful to him, millions, through the faithfulness of a handful. And so the question that I want to ask is: what if we, what if Park Church and the churches around the city said, Here we are, God reestablish courage in us, awaken us both compassion and conviction to be people that are humble and tender and loving, but also bold with the news of the kingdom and send us out into the city. What might God do? I think we are in a moment, in an inflection point in culture, where there are more people that are spiritually hungry and open to hearing things than we think. And when they meet somebody that's not an arrogant, loudmouth Christian that's kind of just looking to argue with things online, but that's actually kind and humble and willing to learn and be gracious and ask for forgiveness and just be a, a good friend to them, when they experience that, and it begins to break down categories and they begin to say, okay, I've been hungry, but I've, all I've seen is what's online. but now I meet you and you're breaking down my presuppositions. Tell me more. This is what God does. And so where I want us to kind of end is begin thinking about people and situations around us where you see brokenness. And I pray that God will give you not contempt for that brokenness, not self-righteousness towards the brokenness, but compassion. And that we as, as a people would say, God, here am I. Here am am I. Send me. Send me with your news. Send me with your love. Send me to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. What might God do if we were faithful to him in that way? Let's pray together, and then we'll take communion. Jesus, we need you right now. And we need your spirit to work among us, to actually awaken in us through your spirit specific People and situations. Maybe it's somebody we've seen that's just been discouraged. A neighbor that we could just build a friendship with and love them, care for them, pray for them. A situation at work. A situation in our, ju- in our city, areas around justice and poverty. That we'd see these things and that like you, Jesus, we'd have your heart of compassion but also that we'd open up our hands as we see you praying for labor, as we'd say, here I am. How would you send me? How would you send me into these situations to be your hands and feet, to be your mouthpiece? And God, I pray that even right now you'd put specific people on our minds, specific situations, that you would call us into the city to extend your mission in this world. We pray in Christ's name, amen.